Pontius Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? And it's a good question, isn't it? What is truth? How can we know truth from falsehood? Can we be certain of anything? Do we need to be certain of anything? Well, today our attention turns to Luke, the man who wrote uh, more of the New Testament than anyone else. And some of you might be thinking, well, I thought the Apostle Paul wrote most of the New Testament. Well, uh, Paul wrote a lot of letters, uh, but they're relatively short compared with the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, these two sizable works written by Luke. And Luke claims to be writing historical fact. He said, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke clearly believes that we can be certain of the events recorded in his two-volume work, Luke Acts. Indeed, we can be certain of the implications of these events. We can be... uh, Uh, We can have total confidence in the gospel. That is what Luke is saying. But why should we take Luke's word for it? And what difference will it make if we do take his account seriously? These are the questions that we're thinking about today. So uh, can we be certain of anything in the first place? And even if we can be certain of some things, how can we be certain that Luke is telling the truth? And if we believe that he is... What difference will it make? Firstly, can we be certain of anything? I think most people would want to answer yes to that question. There are some things, maybe quite a lot of things, about which we can be certain. However, there's a popular myth in our society, a widespread misconception. And that is that we can know things for certain, but only those things that we can prove scientifically. In other words, we can't make any sort of a a truth claim without hard data, without uh, empirical scientific evidence. And at one level, this might seem uh, quite reasonable. But when we scratch below the surface, we see that it's a ludicrous standard to impose on truth. There are lots of things that we believe, and we're right to believe them in the absence of scientific data. Love, for example... After Tissa and I met, and uh, we got to know each other, there came a point where I said those three words, I love you. And fortunately for me, Tissa said them back. And (laughs) we were under a tree in Hyde Park in London. There's always a few nosy people who want to know the details. (laughs) Now, I hope it won't surprise you to learn that I didn't then frog-march Tissa to a scientific laboratory where a team of scientists could affirm that there is hard scientific data to support the claim that Tissa loves me. We made the biggest decision of our lives, the decision to get married on the basis of trust. Of course, there's a great deal of evidence that Tissa loves me. I hope there's an equal amount of evidence that I love Tissa. But it's not scientific evidence. When we look at the way that the majority of people live their lives, it's obvious that scientific evidence is not the only kind of evidence that we rely on. So even a skeptic might concede that scientific evidence is not the only kind of evidence that can bring us to a reasonable level of certainty. They might acknowledge that there are different ways of discovering truth. Intuition, experience, 
historical truth, different kinds of literature, story and narrative, uh, biography, poetry, and so on. An emotion, anger, for instance, can reveal truth. Love can reveal truth. A feeling or a drive, such as hunger, can reveal truth. But to the scientific rationalist, the one thing that cannot reveal truth is religion. So we have variations of scientific rationalism on the one hand. And on the other hand, we have religious pluralism. Now, pluralism itself is not a bad thing. The, uh, the dictionary defines pluralism like this. A condition or system in which two or more states, groups, principles, sources of authority, etc. coexist. Well, we have to coexist, and I hope we would say that that coexistence ought to be peaceful, harmonious, and loving. But religious plurality normally means that the exclusive claims of different religions, in other words, uh, the the, uh, uh, different religious beliefs, turn out to be component parts of one overarching truth. It's this idea that God has ordained various paths for various people in various cultures. Put simply, all paths lead to God. Religious plurality says it doesn't matter what religion you choose because that religion will ultimately bring you to God. So if people are willing to accept religious views, they'll often only accept them as one part of a much bigger truth. The thing is, Christianity does make exclusive truth claims, as do all the other world religions. Uh, People often say, well, if you look at the various world religions, they look different on the surface, uh, but when you get down to it, they basically all believe the same thing. Well, if anything, the opposite is true. The various world religions can look similar on the surface, but when we investigate their claims, we, we realize that they're actually saying very different things. Christianity claims that Jesus is the Son of God. Islam explicitly states that Jesus is not the Son of God. Christianity uh, talks about uh, eternal life in a renewed and restored creation. Buddhism talks about reincarnation. It would be quite irrational to say that all those contrary claims are true. It'd be like saying, well, the flat earthers... And for some bizarre reason, flat earth theory has made a bit of a resurgence recently. I keep seeing it on YouTube. I don't know how that's happened. But it'd be like saying the flat earthers and those who believe that the, the earth is a sphere, you know, well, well those two views are comparable. We can, we, we can find a way of holding them together. But of course we can't. As G.K. Chesterton wrote, diversity does show that most of the views must be wrong. It does not, by the faintest logic, show that they all must be wrong. In other words, we don't have to go all the other way. We don't have to say, well, there are so many different views and competing voices. We can't possibly choose between them. They must all be false. Uh, That would be equally irrational. If you posed a simple maths question to a group of 10 five-year-olds, two plus four plus six, you might get a variety of different answers. Now, let's say you get 10 different answers. Well, you know without seeing most of those, well, you know without seeing the answers that that at least nine of them must be wrong. Uh, 
However, one of those answers could be the right one. If you get 10 answers to that question, you know, they could all be wrong. But if one child puts a hand up and, say, and says 12, then obviously that child has the correct answer. There are many world religions, and they make very different claims. It won't do to say they must all be right. But equally, we can't say, well, because there are so many variations, they must all be wrong. We must check truth claims on the basis of evidence. Otherwise, we will not have any certainty about anything. So we live in an atmosphere of religious pluralism, and this makes us very uneasy about making truth claims. We don't want to say that what we believe is true if the implication is that what someone else believes is true, is false. Uh, if we make truth claims, we may well be seen as narrow-minded bigots, uh, and most of us, um, for obvious reasons, are, are fairly uncomfortable with that. But here's the thing. It's okay to be certain about what we believe. It's okay to say to someone, do you know what, I think we have very different perspectives. Disagreeing with someone is not unloving or disrespectful. Let me say that again. Disagreeing with someone is not unloving or disrespectful, even when we're disagreeing about things that are really important to them and really important to us. Uh, when we lived in Tottenham in London, our neighbours uh, were Muslims from Afghanistan, and we loved our neighbours, and our neighbours loved us. They were such good neighbours. During Ramadan, uh, almost every night, they'd bring around this huge tray full of food. Uh, we couldn't compete with that, but at Christmas, we would buy them gifts, and throughout the course of the year, we'd help one another out in various ways. Of course, we all knew that we had very different religious beliefs, and that was okay. Uh, the family comprised a mother and her four grown-up sons. The mum didn't speak uh, a word of English. Her four boys spoke perfect English. And there were occasions when we had quite deep conversations about faith. And it was obvious that we all believed different things. We didn't agree. And they would try and bring me round to their point of view. And I would try to bring them round to my point of view. But there was no animosity. We were friends. It's okay to be certain about what we believe. It's okay to disagree with the beliefs of others, providing we disagree lovingly, or as Peter says, with gentleness and respect. And to those who would say, well, you think you're right and everyone else is wrong, that makes you a total bigot. Well, that statement presupposes that it is wrong to make a truth claim. But that is in itself a truth claim. So it's a self-defeating logic. If we're going to devote our lives to Jesus, uh, yes, we need to have faith. Of course we do. But it's faith based on evidence, and it comes with a degree of certainty. Now, there are some within the institutional church who sit on insecure foundations. They make the mistake of, of thinking we can't be certain of every, anything. Everything is subject to change. Uh, they would have us believe that we can't trust the gospel as it's been handed down to us. Uh, I heard of an ordained minister in the Church of Scotland who denied the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And he said that Jesus didn't die for our sins. Now, these are central tenets to the Christian faith. All Christians at all times and in all places have believed these things. Uh, if we do away with them, whatever we've got left, it's not Christianity. 
In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If we can't be certain of what's been handed down to us, then the gospel isn't really very good news at all. But it is good news. As the author of Hebrews wrote, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Isn't that a wonderful uh, phrase? An anchor for our soul, firm and secure. Without hope in Jesus, we're like a ship without an anchor, at the mercy of the wind and the currents. And Luke knew this, which is why he wanted Theophilus to be certain of the things that he'd been taught. But Luke Acts is not just for the benefit of Theophilus, it's for our benefit as too, so that, so that we can be certain of the things that we've been taught. But why should we take Luke's word for it? I mean, he makes some pretty outrageous claims, doesn't he? The, the virgin birth, all of Jesus' miracles, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. We've all seen outrageous headlines in the news, and we tend to take them with a pinch of salt. Uh, in recent years, fake news has become a real thing, hasn't it? It's, uh, it is, is a bit of a problem. I, I recently read an article uh, that said that Melania Trump has a body double who fills in for her uh, during certain public engagements. Now, I'm fairly sure that that's fake news. And the ABC reported that fake news travels faster online than the truth. But this isn't a new phenomenon. I mean, the historically speaking, the internet is a relatively new thing, but the propagation of lies or fake news, well, there's nothing new about that. Mark Twain once said, a lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is still putting on its shoes. So who is this Luke that 2,000 years on we should believe what he wrote? Well, we know from his style of writing that he was a highly educated, cultured man, He was a physician by profession. In Colossians 4, Paul refers to him as our dear friend Luke, the doctor. And the New Testament theologian N.T. Wright describes him as the first real historian to write about Jesus. He was a Gentile, a non-Jew, writing to another Gentile, a man by the name of Theophilus. And Luke refers to him as most excellent Theophilus. So it's likely that he was a man of high standing, possibly a Roman governor or a local official. But apart from that, we don't know very much about Theophilus. Was he a new Christian with a rudimentary understanding of the faith? Or or was he a non-Christian who was interested enough to learn? We don't really know. Uh, But what we do know is that Luke went to great pains to establish the facts. He begins by saying, Many have undertaken to draw up up an account of these things that have been fulfilled among us. Now, the many that Luke speaks of uh, could and probably does include uh, some of the other gospel writers. Now, dating the gospels precisely is problematic, but we can have a pretty idea, a good idea of when they were written, and we can be fairly sure that Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel were written uh, before Luke's. And so he may well be referring to, uh, to Mark or to Matthew or to uh, uh, other gospel writers, to other accounts of uh, Jesus that were circulating at the time. So the events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection had by this time already been formulated into some kind of written account. Theophilus had obviously heard of Jesus, and to be honest, I I think probably he was a Christian, and Luke perhaps, at Theophilus' request, uh, went on this journey to establish the facts. 
As one commentator wrote, he's like the tr- a traveler trying to discover the source of a river so that he can descend it again and follow its entire course. Luke is the ancient equivalent of an investigative journalist. And he established the facts by traveling around the villages of Palestine and Syria, speaking with eyewitnesses. Luke will have spoken to the disciples. He will have almost certainly spoken to Mary, the mother of Jesus. He will have spoken to Mary Magdalene and the others. Luke spent time with the people who actually witnessed, experienced, and lived through these remarkable events. Luke isn't asking us simply to take it on trust. He's uh, appealing to a wide base of evidence. Eyewitness evidence is powerful. Uh, Police surveys show that... um, Eyewitness evidence is the main uh, form of evidence in at least 20% of cases. Now, there are some who would question the reliability of eyewitnesses. But we're not talking about one event that's been witnessed by one or two people. We're talking about dozens, if not hundreds of events that have been witnessed, in some cases, by hundreds of people. Remember, too, that in ancient Palestine, within a village, there would be no printed books, and there definitely would be no TV, radio, social media, or anything like that. So remembering stories and passing them on accurately was vitally important. In fact, each village would have had its own official storyteller, and Luke would have been able to consult with them as well. Luke was able to look into the eyes of the people who were recounting these events and assess whether or not they were telling the truth. And when you interview dozens, if not hundreds of people, you're going to build up a pretty accurate picture, especially if all those people are saying more or less the same thing. But it's not just the fact that Luke's writing is supported by eyewitness accounts, or the fact that the the, the witnesses corroborated the story that was already in circulation. Uh, Luke's gospel, indeed all of the gospels, are an extension of the narrative that we read and discover in the Old Testament. The Bible as a whole, both Old and New Testament, is the most incredible uh, set of texts ever written and assembled. A lot of people make the mistake of uh, thinking that the Bible is in the same category as any other uh, religious book. I mean, the best-known religious book after the Bible is, of course, the Quran. Uh, And people will often say, well, the Bible, the Quran, they're they're, they're the same kind of thing. They're not. Uh, The Quran, according to Muslims, was written by one man, Muhammad, over a period of 23 years. One book written in one man's lifetime by one person. The Bible, on the other hand, is a compilation of 66 different books of various genres written over a period of some 1,500 years, give or take 200 years, by uh, at least 40 different authors. And yet the Bible is one unified story that points to Jesus. Luke's gospel, which he investigated thoroughly by interviewing eyewitnesses, uh, fits uh, neatly into the biblical narrative. The more we read and understand the Bible, the more we begin to see how it all fits together. And frankly, it's nothing short of a miracle that it does. So there are good reasons to trust Luke's account. Uh, We can be certain of the things uh, that we've been taught, but perhaps the strongest evidence that the events that Luke records 
uh, in the Gospel of Luke are true is the events that he records in the book of Acts. After Jesus' crucifixion, something happened to the disciples to turn them uh, from a fearful, despondent, dispirited uh, group of men and women who were in hiding, uh, to turn them into courageous and bold missionaries who are willing to die in their proclamation of the good news of the resurrection of Jesus. The rapid spread of the church in the first century uh, in the face of fierce persecution is a well-documented historical fact. We have to ask ourselves, what is the event that served as the catalyst for all of that? And the good news of Jesus was not spread by the sword. It wasn't spread by coercion or force or violence. It spread by the power of the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts begins with these words. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Well, Luke's second volume, the book of Acts, is all about what Jesus continues to do and teach by the power of his Holy Spirit working in and through his church. Not just the church in the first century, but his church today, us. So what will happen if we take Luke's account seriously? As I was writing this, I wondered how uh, Theophilus responded to Luke's account. The fact is we don't know, but I imagine that he took it seriously. I hope he did. But far more important than that now is what will happen to us or anybody else who takes this account seriously. Well, the Gospel of Luke is powerful. Believing it with certainty is life-changing, not because Luke was a skillful uh, uh, writer, although he was, but because of the person who stands behind this account, because of Jesus Christ. If we believe the gospel and put our hope and trust in Jesus, we will enter into a right relationship with, and, uh, uh, with the eternal God. And the reason that this faith has been passed down from one generation to the next, the reason that we're here today, is because this has been the lived experience of countless millions of Christians down through the ages. They have entered into a right relationship uh, with God, a, a life-changing relationship. So can we be certain of anything? Yes, we can. And despite what our culture tells us, there is nothing irrational or wrong or bigoted about believing the claims of Christianity. If we accept every philosophy and worldview, we end up being certain of nothing. We don't have to accept everything but we check truth claims on the basis of evidence. Can we rely on Luke's evidence? Absolutely. It's based on eyewitness accounts, and it's in accord with the whole canon of Scripture, the whole of the Bible. What will happen if we take Luke's account seriously by putting our faith in Jesus? Well, we'll be brought into a right relationship with God that will last forever. And this is a relationship that will change and transform us God fills us with his Holy Spirit. When we come to that point of accepting Jesus into our lives, God fills us with his Holy Spirit, and it's the work of the Holy Spirit within us that brings that change over time, that little by little we become uh, more like Jesus. And that's a process that lasts our whole life. So we can take Luke's account seriously. We can trust the gospel as it's handed down to us. Uh, we can believe in the truth of the gospel. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we live in a world where information is coming at us from all directions. We're exposed to different worldviews, beliefs, philosophies, uh, religious systems. And it can be confusing. But Father, uh, we know that we can trust the gospel. We know that we can trust you. Your son Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so, Father, we pray that we will make Jesus the truth in our life. That we will order our lives around the person of Jesus Christ. That we will be willing to uh, cooperate with your spirit as you change and transform us into the people that you've called us to be. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.